Man, so chapter 6 of Esther is where things really start to get fun, all right? So we have set the scene. Esther has become queen by winning a beauty pageant, has kept her, her Jewish ethnicity a secret. Her cousin Mordecai has refused to bow down to Haman, thus angering one of the most powerful people in all of Persia, like the number two guy. Haman devises a plan to kill every person of Jewish descent in just a few months from this, this, this point. Mordecai and Esther communicate. Mordecai reminds Esther of who she is and whom she belongs to. And he reminds Esther... She reminds her that, that her works, that she reminds her that God works in ways that are always for the benefit of his people. And that perhaps she was made queen because God is wanting to use her to save all the Jews living in Persia. Well, the light bulb goes off in Esther's mind. And she becomes who Israel needs her to be. Who God is calling her to be. And she devises a plan to save her people, but it all starts with a pivotal point in chapter 5 where Queen Esther goes in the king's throne room uninvited. We talked about that last week. Now the penalty for doing that is death, no matter who you are, queen or not. Esther goes in, and luckily for her and for all involved, he extends the scepter and says, come on in, queen. Esther goes in and invites the king and Haman to a couple of feasts that she is going to have in their honor. The king and Haman gladly accept, and at the end of chapter 5, we see Haman both bragging and furious, bragging about how awesome he is, how awesome his family is, his powerful position in the kingdom, and the fact that the queen has invited only two people to her banquet, the king and him. He's so excited about that. But he's furious still because Mordecai, refuses to bow down to him because Mordecai still lives and he is furious that the appointed day of reckoning isn't coming fast enough where the Jews will get wiped off the face of the earth and he is low looking forward to that day. Shoo. That's where we are. Let me, let me go ahead and read for you chapter 6. That night, the king had trouble sleeping. So he ordered an attendant to bring the book of history of his reign so that it could be read to him. In those records, he discovered an account of how Mordecai had exposed the plot of Bigthana and Teresh, two of the eunuchs who guarded the door to the king's private quarters. They had plotted to assassinate King Xerxes. What reward or recognition did we ever give to Mordecai for this? The king asked. 
his, his attendants replied, nothing has been done to him or for him. Who is that in the outer court? The king inquired. As it happened, Haman had just arrived in the outer court of the palace to ask the king to impale Mordecai on a pole that he had prepared. So the attendants replied to the king, Haman is out there in that court. Well, bring him in, the king ordered. So Haman came in, and the king said, What should I do to a man that truly pleases me? Haman thought to himself, Who would the king wish to honor more than me? So he replied, If the king wishes to honor someone, he should bring out one of the king's own royal robes, as well as a horse that the king himself has ridden, one with the royal emblem on his head, and you let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials, and let him see the man whom the king wishes to honor is dressed in the king's robes and led through the city square on the king's horse. Have the official... Officials shout as they go, this is what the king does for someone he wishes to honor. Excellent, said the king to Haman. Quick, take my robes and my horse and do just as you have said. For Mordecai, the Jew who sits at the gate of the palace, leave out nothing that you have suggested. So Haman took the robes and put them on Mordecai, placed them on the king's horse, led him through the city square, shouting, This is what the king does for someone who he wishes to honor. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the palace gate, but Haman hurried home dejected and completely humiliated. When Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends what had happened, his wife his wise advisors and his wife said, Since Mordecai, this man who has humiliated you, is of Jewish birth, you will never succeed in your plans against him. It will be fatal to continue opposing him. And while they were still talking, the king's eunuchs arrived and quickly took Haman to the banquet that Esther had prepared. Dun, dun. Duh, right? This is, this is where we are. I think by now you all get that I love this story, right? Hopefully you guys understand that. I do. I love it. I love that, that God is, is not mentioned, yet he is all over this book. I love the twists. I love the turns. I love the suspense. It is truly a masterpiece in storytelling and this wasn't concocted by some man sitting in a room thinking of a good story. No, this really happened. And was all set in motion by the master storyteller himself, God. The unnamed God in this story. However, while God wasn't identified in this book, we can see that God had to be responsible for this to happen. There's too much going on. For anything else. God is so good at nuance. Like we see here in chapter 6. That God is letting everyone know. That he is in charge. He is in control. 
And he always, always reveals truth in every situation where he is at work. And church, he was at work in the book of Esther. He was. So here are some truths revealed about God in Esther chapter 6. Number one, God always knows your heart. Esther 4.10, the second part of 4.10 through 11. Then Haman gathered together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, and boasted to them about his great wealth and his many children. He bragged about the honors the king had given him and how he had been promoted over all the other nobles and officials. You know, one of the verses I take great comfort in when the world doesn't seem fair, when, when nothing seems just, when it seems the wicked get richer and the well-intentioned people continue to get piled on and piled on and piled on. I always come back to the words of Jesus. I, I think if there was anything that Jesus understood, is he understood unfair. He understood unjust treatment. He was perfect, he was God, and they crucified him for goodness sake. Talk about unfair, right? Anyway, the words of Jesus, Matthew 5, 43-48. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives sunlight to both the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you were to be kind only to your friends, how are you different from anybody else? Even the pagans do that. But you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. You know, Jesus understood patience because, goodness, was he patient. He was patient with the disciples. He was patient with the Pharisees. He was patient with the crowds. He was patient with the Romans. He was patient with Pilate and with the guards. And the question is, why? Because he knew that all of them, whether it be Peter or Judas, none of them deserved what he was going to provide for them. He knew that. And yet we read in 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed but wants everyone to repent. Listen, God wanted every chance for his enemies to become his friends, to be adopted in his family, and to spend all of eternity together with him. That is what he is being patient for. Do unjust things happen in this world? Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Because it has not, this world has not been made perfect yet. It has not been made new yet. 
evil has not been done away with yet. But it's coming. It's like one of my favorite scenes from the movie Gladiator, if you've ever seen that movie. The, the main character, Gladiator, is, is Russell Crowe, but there's a side character, the buddy of his. And they're talking about death. And they're talking about the fact that, that Russell Crowe is going to die. And he says, I will see you again, but not yet. Not yet. Guys, God is patient with us. God is patient with this world. And I don't know why. Because I look around and I go, God, I don't understand what you see in it. But he is so patient with us with this world, with the wicked, with the just. He is so patient with everyone on this earth because He desires for everyone to come to repentance. That's why. A reckoning is coming, but not yet. Not yet. Number two, God always sees. Esther 3, 2-4 through four. All the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by, for so the king had commanded. But Mordecai refused to bow down and show him respect. Then the palace officials of the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why are you disobeying the king's command? They spoke to him day after day, but he still refused to comply with the order. So they spoke to Haman about this to see if he could tolerate Mordecai's conduct, since Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. So can I read in between the lines for you in this story, in this, especially this verse? Why would Mordecai tell the palace officials that he was a Jew? Anybody got an idea? Because the Jews believed in the law that you shall do what? Put no other gods before me. And it wasn't because he was bragging about it. Jews were foreigners. They were strangers. They were living in a foreign land. God had allowed Babylonians to come in and possess them, to oppress them, and to be Lord over them. Mordecai wouldn't tell them he was Jewish unless what? Unless he was explaining to them why he wouldn't bow. So why didn't he bow? I was reading a quote from uh, a rabbi Alex Israel, this week, has said this, It is very simple. It is not an I- to an icon or an idol that Mordecai refuses to bow. The problem is that Haman has turned himself into an object of worship. Mordecai rep- repudiates Haman's self-worship and refuses to bow to Haman in disdain of his self-centered arrogance. Listen, God not only knows our hearts, but God also sees everything we do. He saw Mordecai. He saw the end of chapter 2. Mordecai seemingly didn't get rewarded for foiling a plot to assassinate the king. Instead, in chapter 3, the enemy of the Jewish people, the enemy of God, is elevated. And Mordecai is punished for doing what is right. Haman was trying to use his power in such a way that he would become someone to be worshipped, a god, if you will. 
He had filled the treasury. He had ascended to the most influential person in the kingdom. Well, wait, wait. I thought Xerxes was the king. He was the most influential. Well, think about this. Xerxes is broke. He has overextended the Babylon army. He's overextended the Babylon Amex card, if you will. And Haman comes riding in on a white horse to save the day. So much like the plots of countless terrible movies, the most powerful man in the world is now indebted to a person, which now makes him the most indebted, makes him the most powerful man in the world. That's the thing, like movies, if we can get the president to be under our thumb, if we can get dirt on him to do what we want, then we can be the most powerful person. That's what's going on here in this story. So really, Haman is now the most powerful person in all of Babylon. So things seem bad in chapter 3, and then in chapter 4, things still seem bad. Chapter 5, yep, still bad. This whole thing is shaping up for a, a recipe of disaster. But listen, God always sees. He sees what we do. He sees the good. He sees the bad. He sees the ugly. He sees the really, really ugly. He sees people that try and honor him. He sees the people that try and honor only themselves. Those that try to climb over, all over, or around everyone else to scramble their way to the top. He sees those that will throw you in front of a bus if it means that they might get a little bit ahead. And like Mordecai, if that is you, you would probably wonder to yourself, why doesn't God see me? Why doesn't he see that I'm trying to honor him? That I'm trying to live my life the, the right way. I'm trying to do the right things. Why is my life such a mess when I'm trying so hard to live my life as an expression of worship to God, to Him, to my na- and my neighbor, I see my neighbor, he mocks God, the very thought of God, and yet they seem to get more and more and more ahead in this world. I don't get it. Like I just read. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. But he does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. He sees us, church. He always does. And just as he is patient with others, we must never forget that he is patient with you and me. Number three, God always rewards. Esther 6, the second part of 6 through 10. Haman thought to himself, whom would the king wish to honor more than me? So he replied, if the king wishes to honor someone, he should bring out the king's own royal robes, as well as a horse that the king himself has ridden, one one with the royal emblem on its head. Let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials and let him see the man whom the king wishes to honor is dressed in the king's robes and led through the city square on the king's horse. Have the officials shout as they go, this is what the king does for someone he wishes to honor. 
Excellent, the king said to Haman. Quick, take the robes and my horse and do just as you have suggested. And do that for Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the gate of the palace. Leave out nothing you have suggested. You talk about turning the tables. This is it. Tables just got turned. I love it. Chapter 6 makes me laugh. It's like a good movie here. We get a little taste, a little foreshadowing is what, of what is to come. From this point on, it is now not Xerxes' show. It's not the Haman show. It's not even Mordecai or Esther's show. From here on out, it's all God. Again, just because God's name is never mentioned, God is clearly steering the ship. I think that God was doing a couple things here. One, he is giving Haman a little taste of humble pie. Because the whole pie is coming in about three chapters. He's getting a little taste. And two, he is letting Mordecai know, I will always reward you for doing the things that I have called you to do. It wasn't how you thought it would be. It wasn't when you thought it would be. It has not been anything you would have ever dreamed up yourself. But I am here. I am in control. Church, God is a loving, rewarding God. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. God always gives us what we spend our lives asking him for. If we have been telling God with our life that we don't want anything to do with him, then in the end, he gives us what we want. Have nothing to do with me anymore. If we have spent our lives loving God and trying to love our neighbors, then God gives us, in the end, what we have been spending our lives asking for. God always rewards. Always. Sometimes it's immediate. Sometimes, like Mordecai here in our story, it takes a little while. And other times, we never see it on earth. But listen to Luke 6.23. What blessings await you when people hate you and exclude you and mock you and curse you as evil because you follow the Son of Man. When that happens, be happy. Yes, leap for joy. For a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, their ancestors treated the ancient prophets that same way. Listen, church, Bowen, God always knows our hearts. He always sees us. He always rewards us. Either here on earth, or even better yet, an eternity spent with him. Praise God for that promise.